Well, it's been a long time coming, and I'm glad we're finally here. I have, for many, many years, wanted to dive into Genesis 1 to 11 with anybody who would listen. <laughs> and I have an audience. I have a congregation. And I really look forward to um, diving into these first chapters of everything. It's really why we've called the series The Beginning of Everything. In Genesis 1, 1, we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And our response to that is, in part, a response that is called for in the book of Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11 uh, describes for us how we are to reflect on that when we wrestle it through in our hearts and minds. It says, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it, people of old received their commendation. By faith, we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. In the beginning, God created everything. As we wrestle through this, it clearly is, I think, not just a book that we read on our own and study on our own, but it is a book that is to be preached. There's a real message here. There is a gospel message here. There's the revelation of God that's contained in these first 11 chapters of the Bible. And he gave us these so that we might understand the world in which we live. We might understand the God who made this world. We might understand what's gone wrong in this world in which we live. And as I come to the Bible, as I always do, I am absolutely convinced with all of my heart that it is the word of God. It is inerrant. It is infallible. It is a word that we need in the world in which we live to guide us. I have trusted my life with it. I will continue to trust my life to it. I have given my confidence to God who holds my eternal soul in his hands. And I'm convinced of the things that the word of God says. And so as we come to this particular portion of the Bible, I am convinced that God is real. And that changes everything. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That changes everything. Some might wonder from time to time, and I know people do, well, can an ancient book, and we mean ancient, because this was written 3,000 years ago. Does an ancient book have anything to say to us who live in the 21st century? Is there any wisdom? Is there any value? Is there any importance from going back to words that were written 3,000 years ago and say, yes, they are words that ought to instruct me, ought to guide me, ought to frame my life, I ought to obey them. Well, I think there absolutely is relevance to them because we are always seeking to understand who we are. We're always wondering where we are and we're always trying to figure out how we are supposed to be who we are, where we are. That's a bit of a mouthful. That's a word salad. Have we heard of word salads before? That's a word salad. I think though, in other words, what I think is we are always searching to make sense out of our life and out of the world in which we live. And I am absolutely convinced that these first chapters do that for us. They set us up to understand this world in which we live. Where did we come from? Why are we here? What are we? Are we alone in this universe? What does it mean to be human? What is wrong with us? Where is God in our world? What kind of God is he? Can our world be fixed? Who will do the fixing? 
These are questions that we continue to ask generation after generation after generation, and many like it. And so these chapters will tell us about God. They will tell us about our world. They will tell us about ourselves and why things are the way they are. Genesis 1 to 11 is primeval history. In other words, these um, first 11 chapters are universal history of the world in which we live. They tell us how this world came into being. They tell us what went wrong with the world. They tell us how God has been involved in the world. They tell us how this world has been populated. They tell us all of these things. They tell us how we, the world was created perfectly, how the world then was corrupted, how, how sin entered into the world, how death entered into the world. This is the history of mankind, not just a specific group, not just Christians, but the history of mankind. They're absolutely essential chapters to understanding our world. Then when you come to Genesis chapter 12, though, we begin to come to look at redemption history. And in Genesis chapter 12, we then have the calling and choosing of Abraham from which the whole redemption story is worked out, how God is going to renew and save this world in which he has created, which has gone bad because of sin. When we look at these first 11 chapters, the first two chapters of it are, are, are wonderful chapters. They describe to us this beautiful place, which after God had finished making it, he looked at all that he made and he said, this is very good. There was a beauty to it. There was an aesthetic quality to it. There was a harmony to it. There was no sin in the world. There was no evil in the world. But then the rest of the chapters describe three traumatic events. More than that, but three specific traumatic events that impacted our world. One is the fall through which sin entered into the world. And it explains so much about our world, so much about humankind. It describes why there's death and why there's suffering in our world. It's critical that we wrap our heads around that. Secondly, it describes the universal flood in which God destroyed this, uh, everything that has breath. We talked about praising the Lord, everything that has breath. God destroyed the whole world and all that had breath in it. Why did he do that? And what was the result of that? And then we have the Tower of Babel and humankind's attempt to try and displace God to try and set themselves up as God. And as God came down and dispersed the humankind and changed their language and sent them out across the world, all these things are described in Genesis 1 to 11, which, as I said, is primeval history. These chapters are also really important because they set the foundation for everything else in Scripture, for every doctrine that we have in Scripture, for everything that we believe in Scripture. You can trace its origins back to Genesis chapter 1 to 11. These chapters are the theological underpinnings of everything that Christians believe. And these things are worked out, as they say, now through the rest of Scripture. So things such as, uh, our, our, where does humanity come from? What is our spiritual heritage? What about God? What about the creation of the universe? What about the creation of the world? What about the creation of Adam and Eve? How about, what about sin? What about suffering? What about death? What about judgment? What about marriage? Where does marriage come from? I say from time to time in, when I do a wedding that marriage is not an invention of humankind. We would have never invented something like this. We would have never came up with this. In fact, we're trying to get rid of it. Marriage is a gift of God to men and women. And it goes all the way back to Genesis chapter 2. We also have, though, sexuality. 
Male and female, he created them. We have an explanation of how this world was destroyed and how much of the, the world is understood. We have the, uh, the history of civilization, so to speak. These chapters explain where, the, where time came from, where space came from, where matter and the earth, the entire universe are described in these first 11 chapters of the Bible. But it's really critical, and we'll say this from time to time, but it's important for me just to set some of the boundaries as we head in here. Uh, Genesis 1 to 11, in particular Genesis 1 to 3, are not standalone chapters. They are connected with the rest of the Bible. They are intimately and integrally connected with the rest of the revelation that God has given us. I think one of the ways in which we need to think about Genesis 1 to 3, and particularly Genesis 1 to 11, is in relation to the end of the Bible as well. There is a connection between the first books of the Bible and the last book of the Bible. In Genesis uh, chapter uh, 1, we start in a garden. We lose that garden. It's paradise lost. But at the end of this age, when we come to Revelation chapter 21, we have paradise regained. And we find ourselves back in a garden. In Genesis chapter 1, we have a light that shone on this world before the sun was created, that God was the light of the world on day one. There was a fascinating, God said, let there be light. Well, it wasn't the sun. Well, when we come to Revelation chapter 21 and 22, we recognize that there is no sun in the new heaven and the earth, but that God is the light. We go from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. We find at the end of Genesis chapter three that this earth and all that is in us, this universe is cursed. And in fact, in Romans chapter eight, we read that all creation groans. It groans until when? Until this earth is destroyed and God recreates it. And then in Revelation, it says, and there is no more curse. There's a progression from Genesis to the book of Revelation. In Genesis chapter three, humankind is banned from eating from the tree of life. In Revelation chapter 22, verses one to four, we are, uh, the garden is described once again with a tree of life from which we come and the nations eat of the fruit of the tree of life. There's an intimate connection between the start of our universe and the end of this age in which we know. You can't hive them off from the rest of biblical revelation. There's a movement, creation, fall, redemption, new creation. I think secondly, or thirdly, wherever I am now, I think it's important that we understand at least how I'm coming to approach these chapters. I'll have more to say about these things later on, but uh, the, the, the main thing that I think you need to know is that I understand Genesis 1 to 11 as history as recording historical events that really happened in time and space. There is likely no more profound sentence that has ever been uttered in the language of any human being, nation, tribe, anywhere than in the beginning, God. History has a beginning. The history of the world has a beginning. The history of all things created have a beginning. The way that history is described matters. The history of the world is linear. It is going somewhere. It is not circular. It is not going round and round and round, just repeating yourself. It had a beginning and it will have a conclusion. And these chapters are to be taken at face value as a divinely revealed history of creation given to us by the one who observed it. Nobody else was here when the world was created. 
We can't recreate the creation of the world. So who do we listen to? Who do we believe? Who tells us the story of how this world was, came into being? Well, the one who made it. And he tells us how he did it. He tells us when he did it. And so I understand that these words in Genesis 1 to 11 are describing real events that really happened. We trust God and his record given to us. By faith, we understand. Why by faith? Because nobody was there. Because we have to believe what God says. We, by faith, we understand and believe that scripture is true, that what God tells us is right and correct. By faith, we understand that the universe was created how? By the word of God. So that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. Christians down through the ages have recited the Apostles' Creed, which says, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, or creator of heaven and earth. So by saying that, I'm saying that nothing I find in Genesis 1, 2, 3 suggests that the biblical creation account is merely symbolic, poetic, allegorical, or mythical. It is real history. There are 22 things created in Genesis 1 alone. Genesis 1 to 11 contain 66 geographical names, 88 personal names, 48 generic names, 21 identifiable cultural items such as gold and brass and musical instruments and iron. Genesis 10 alone has five times more geographical data than the whole Quran. This is history, loved ones. The creation of Adam is literal history. Adam was a literal human being. He was a historical being. Jesus, in fact, has his lineage traced back to a historical Adam. You read Luke chapter three and you read the 20 or so names that we find in Genesis recorded by Luke, understanding them to be historical people all the way back to Adam. Jesus saw his line as coming from the very line of the historical person, Adam himself. If Adam was not the literal ancestor of the entire race, then the Bible's explanation of how sin entered into the world makes no sense at all. And if we didn't fall in Adam, then we can't be redeemed in Christ. The gospel message demands that Adam be a real historical literal person. If he is not, the gospel message is gone. Paul understood Adam to be the source of humanity, proclaiming to the Greeks on Mars Hill that God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. Who wrote Genesis? The author there is no author actually mentioned in the book of Genesis itself. However, you read through the Old Testament and into the New Testament, and time and time again, you will find biblical writers crediting Moses as the author. 
You will hear me say from time to time as we go through this series, and Moses said, or Moses wrote, understanding that it was God who gave Moses the words to write, but Moses was the one who, from a human perspective, wrote it all down. And Genesis 1 is part of the five books of Moses, right? You understand the five books of Moses. Genesis, Samuel, Malachi, oh no. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. The five books of Moses. The story of creation to the death of Moses contained in those five books. When was it written? It's really important that you think this through a little bit. I, uh, it kind of caught me off guard as I was thinking. I don't know when I thought it was written. I always knew Moses wrote it, but I just never sort of thought about it very much. But Moses uh, likely wrote it sometime after the Exodus, about 1445 B.C., and before his death in about 1405 B.C., this was obviously sometime then after creation, sometime after God had created the world, sometime after the creation of Adam, the entrance of sin into the world, the universal flood, the Tower of Babel, after Abraham had been called and led out and all the patriarchs had uh, traveled from him until they finally ended up in Egypt. And they were rescued from Egypt and they left Egypt through the parting of the sea and sometime after that, before Moses died, the account of creation was written. This in part helps me understand the different cosmologies that were in the world then. By cosmology, all I mean is ways that humans have tried to describe the existence of the universe and the world in which we live. That's a cosmology. At least that's Paul's definition of cosmology. We're always looking for ways to explain our universe, aren't we? Sometimes we think about it very seriously. Other times we just take it for granted. But we're always looking for ways to explain the existence of the universe, to explain our existence to it. I, I don't think there's a person around here who hasn't said, well, why am I here? Why am I, why am I not there? How did I come to being? Why am, what am I doing here? And it would have been no different in the days before Moses wrote the biblical account that we have. The main explanation of the universe would have started with Adam. Right? Adam would have had first-hand experience, at least of the garden, and then of what happened in that garden. He would have told stories. He would have told his sons and daughters. He would have told his grandsons and granddaughters. They would have, had, they would have got married and had children. They would have passed these stories down. They would have looked at the world. Some of them, there's a place in Genesis where it says, and now man began to call on the Lord. So that's saying that there were times when men in their early days didn't call upon the Lord. They had fallen headlong into sin. And so people were always then still, even back then, looking at the world and trying to make sense of it, trying to understand their place in it, trying to know where they came from. And these stories would have built and they would have grown and they would have developed. And so you have um, uh, cosmologies from Babylon, from Egypt, from Canaan, uh, different ways of describing how the world came into being. Over the thousands of years that preceded the writing of the book of uh, Exodus, there would have been all these descriptions out in the world that men and women would have come up to describe Existence. But at right, at just the right time, as the children of Israel were going into Canaan and were being formed as a people, God says, okay, let me tell you about the creation of the world. And it was different from every other account of creation that was floating around at that time. And it would be because God was there. God was the one who did it. 
God was the one who saw it. God was the one who spoke it into existence. God knew what happened. God knew why it happened. God knew how you responded to all of that. And so God precisely gave Moses a record of those first chapters of Genesis 1 to 11. Well, even of the patriarchs. You read any of those other and even modern day cosmologies. They deny the existence of God. They deny the presence of God. They try and understand the world in, in their own understanding of general revelation and their place in the world in which they live. You read those cosmologies and there's, there's a plurality of gods and those gods have sex with one another and those gods then through their procreation um, bring about things on this earth and uh, things on this earth are all part of trying to make sense and worship the things that they see in the sky and the sun and the stars. There's a devaluation of history. There's real myth in those cosmologies. On the other hand, you have the biblical account of creation which is monotheistic, is one God and that God is outside of time and space. That God is outside outside of creation and outside of the world. And so as Israel looks at this, Israel's not concerned with trying to explain the origin of God. God simply said, in the beginning, I was. And they accepted that and they believed that. God is not sexual. History matters. And so that explains for me the, 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 the two different um, understandings of cosmology in the world in which we live. We got to wrestle this through a little bit too by understanding the difference between um, the way God has revealed himself in the world in which we live, which is general revelation. We all see it. It's universal and special revelation, which is God's word to us here. They're different. Uh, they're very different. General revelation, is its main focus is the glory of God. Psalm 19, verse 1 say, the heavens declare what? The glory of God. Day to day pours forth speech. You go outside, you look at the skies, you look, go out at night, you look at the stars, you, you, you go out in the woods and you look at the flora and the fauna and, and there's something in there that reveals to you there must be a creator and that creator must be glorious, that creator must be mighty, that creator must be powerful. Where did this all come from? In fact, uh, in, in Isaiah chapter 6, uh, the angels are around the throne and they're singing, um, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God of hosts. The whole, what? Earth is full of his glory. So all around us, to every single human being that has sight, that has ever been born from the very beginning of Adam to where we are now, the glory of God is seen to everyone in the world that he has created. It's universally accessible. It has been for all time, the moment that God finished creation, he declared it was very good. Creation declared the glory of God. It's not something that you need to have a science degree for or a biology degree for to see the glory of God. It is visible to everyone who has sight and sense. And it's instantly perceived, as they say, once God created the world. It's, it's not progressive. It is just there for all to see. But general revelation is limited. If you looked at general revelation, you would never have the story of creation that we have in the Bible, would you? You'd come up with your own understanding or explanation of how this world came to be. We all do. 
If you set aside the Bible, you will answer those questions of why is there something and not nothing? Why am I here? What gives life meaning? What happens to I die through general revelation? General revelation is enough to leave us without excuse before God, as Romans 1.25 says, but it conveys nothing of the purposes of God, nothing of the character of God. And so how do we understand general revelation? How do we understand the world around us? Understand it through the special revelation of God. This is how we make sense of the world that we see. This is how we understand the world that we see. In all its glory, in all its might, in all its beauty, in all its evil, in all its sin, we understand it by understanding how God tells us it came about and what went wrong in this world. God has spoken to us. He has told us about himself. He has told us about ourselves. He has described for us how this world came into a being. We are not left in the dark, but we need special revelation to interpret general revelation. I hope that makes sense to you. This is why the Christian worldview is different from any other explanation of the origins of the universe. You need to wrestle with, I, I have lots here, but I've got other things I want to, you need to wrestle with Romans chapter 1, verse 25. Romans 1, 25 is such a critical verse for understanding why things go amok in the world. And in Romans chapter 1, 25, Paul describes the chaos in our world from this point of view, because they exchanged the truth of God for a lie. What was the lie? The lie was that God didn't create this world. The lie was that creation is all that there is. And what gets us into trouble is when we seek our answers only from creation, when we seek to understand creation, when we seek to worship creation, when we seek to praise creation and forget about the one who created creation. The creator. This is explaining so much about what is going crazy in our world is because we want to get rid of God. We want to say there is no God. We want to say God does not exist. We want to say God is not outside of time. God is inside time. In fact, God is in us. God is in the trees. God is everywhere. God is everything. The Bible says, no, that's not true. The world in which we live, the biblical perspective is that this world is binary. There is a creator and there is creation and they are distinct. The world wants to say nothing is binary. The world wants to push us non, to be non-binary. There is no distinction in sexes. There is no distinction in things in this world. Everything is one. Everything is collapsed into one. Genesis 1.25 is critical to thinking through these things. I want, I want you to know, and I, I won't do it this morning because I want to get to some other things just as we end, and we're close to the ending, but more confirmation that we are intended to understand Revelation or Genesis 1 to 11 as history, as historical events. It, one of the most profound defenses of that is the way that the New Testament writers, Jesus included, speak of the events of Genesis 1 to 11. 
They speak of Adam. They speak of Abel. They speak of the flood. They speak of the fall. They speak of marriage. They don't speak them, uh, of them as myths or as things that, that uh, sort of are, are helpful. They speak of them as literal history. There are at least 54 places in the New Testament which look back to Genesis 1 to 4 alone and treat it as history. So Genesis 1 to 11 doesn't stand alone or by itself. It is an integral part of our understanding of the world and the way the world is. And Jesus and Paul and Peter and others go back again and again and again to particularly Genesis 1 and 2 to look at the way things should be and what has gone wrong. So I just want to end with these things then. We need to end with scripture. There are dozens of verses of scripture. The word of God, the spoken word of God, is why there is something and not nothing. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord from the heavens. Praise him in the heights. Praise him, all his angels. Praise him, all his hosts. Praise him, sun and moon. Praise him, all you shining stars. Praise him, you highest heavens and you waters above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for he commanded and they were created. Jeremiah 10, 12. It is he who made the earth by his power, who established the world by his wisdom and by his understanding, he stretched out the heavens. Thus says the Lord who made the earth and the, the Lord who formed and established it in his name. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on the earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or authorities or rulers, all things have been created by him and for him. Isaiah forty-five twelve. I made the earth and created man on it. It was my hands that stretched out the heavens and I commanded all their hosts. Believe the word of God. Secondly, there's the wonder of God in creation. I, for a different reason entirely, was reflecting on Job chapter 38 for the last three weeks. And Job is, got out of his funk. He no longer wishes to die. He now wants an audience with God. He says, God, you owe me. You owe me an explanation. You Owe it to me to tell me why my life is the way that he is. it is. Have you ever been there? So then the Lord answered Job out of the whirlwind and said, Who is this that darkens counsels by word without knowledge? Dress for action like a man. And I will question you, and you will make it known to me. So this is how God begins with him. God's question, where were you when I laid the foundations of the earth? <laughs> Tell me if you have understanding. Who determined its measurements? Surely you know. Divine sarcasm there, isn't it? Or who stretched the line upon it? On what were its bases sunk? Or who laid its cornerstone when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy? Or who shut the sea in with doors when it burst out from the womb? What an amazing description, eh? The seas just bursting out. 
just looking for places to go. We see that in floods, don't we? When I made clouds its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band and prescribed limits for it and set bars and doors and said, thus far you shall come and no farther and here, you shall, here shall your proud ways be saved. Job, where were you when I created the shoreline and I said to the seas, no farther? Have you commanded the morning since your days began? Have you caused the dawn to know its place that it might take hold of the skirts of the earth? Where is the way of the dwelling of light? Job, tell me, where is where's light? Where does, it, where does it exist? Where does it come from? Job, tell me, you know. Surely you know, Job. And where is the place of darkness? that you may take it to its territory and that you may discern the past to its home. You know, for you were born then and the number of your days is great. That's pretty astounding, isn't it? Do you know when the mountain goats give birth? Do you observe the calving of the does? Can you number the months that they fulfill? And do you know the time when they give birth? When they crouch, bring forth their offspring and are delivered of their young? It just goes on and on and on. Finally, it says, Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is it that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore, I have uttered what I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear, and I will speak. I will question you, and you will make it known to me. Ha. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes have seen you. Psalm 33, 6 says, Let all the inhabitants of the earth, let me read the first part. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their host. He gathers the waters of the sea as a heap and puts deep deeps in the storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the earth stand in awe of God. Do you stand in awe of God when you look at the world around you? Or do you doubt his power and his mighty word and his understanding? Lastly, not only are we to believe that he created by his word, not only are we to be awestruck by the reality of his creation, but it should leave us on our faces. The 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and they worship him who lives forever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory, honor, and power. Why? For you created all things, and by your will they, are, they existed and were created. Do you fall down in awe and wonder and worship before God when you consider the world in which you live? That's how the Bible instructs us to respond 
to the mighty power and wisdom and word of our God. Believe, be awestruck, and worship him who made all things. Father, we come before you today. I pray that as we consider these words in Genesis over the next number of weeks, that we will never lose sight of some of these things that we have talked about even today. It really does change our view of everything when we believe that you made this world and all that is in it. It informs our praying. It informs our confidence that nothing is impossible for you. It inspires in us awe and worship. Help us, I pray, in Christ's name, amen.